Hi, this is your Russian Rulers podcast host, Mark Schaus. I'm interrupting today's podcast all the way from episode 108 to make a short announcement. I've created a new blog site for all things having to do with Russian history and far beyond just the rulers. You can find it at www.RussianRulersHistory.com. I mean, there's a lot of content there already to read about things like the Decemberist Revolt of 1825, the life of Sviatopolk the Accursed, Nikita Khrushchev, and much, much more. Of course, there's also a small little PayPal donation button there if you want to help support the podcast. It would be much appreciated. Now, on to the podcast. Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 52, Emperor Paul I. Last episode, we said goodbye to a giant of a woman, Catherine the Great. She served her country for 34 years, and she moved the country in the direction that Peter the Great had started by continuing his westernization program, but staying truly Russian. While the Empress did much for the country and expanded its borders immensely, Catherine made life for the serfs no better, and probably worse. With Catherine dead, her son and now Tsar, Paul wasted no time working on reversing whatever his mother had accomplished that displeased him, regardless of the consequences. The first thing he did was to make right by his murdered father, a murder he blamed entirely on Catherine. Just three days after her death, he issued the following edict. On the occasion of the death of our beloved mother, we have appointed a commission of mourning to organize the transfer of the corpse of our beloved father, Sovereign Emperor Peter Fyodorovich, of blessed memory, from the Holy Trinity Monastery of St. Alexander Nevsky to the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul, and the burial of the body of Her Imperial Majesty in that same church. According to Columbia professor Richard Wortman, when Paul enacted a posthumous coronation for his dead father, he, quote, symbolically and posthumously dethroned Empress Catherine. The new Tsar would not bury his mother until his father was with her, which was on December 6, 1796, a full month after Catherine's death. A double funeral service was held, reuniting the two people who hated each other in life. Everyone was astounded at the lack of remorse and sadness Paul showed following his mother's death. But, in his defense, who can blame him? She had little love for him, so why would he change now? Grand Duchess Elizabeth, wife of Alexander, wrote to her mother about her father-in-law, As if it were his father who had just died, and not his mother, for he speaks only of the former, providing every room with his portrait, and saying not a word of his mother, except to condemn and roundly abuse everything that was done in her day. Quickly after taking control, the emperor released thousands of Polish prisoners, most famously Tadeusz Kosciuszko. He then reinstated the laws of compulsory service of the nobility, which, ironically, his father Peter III had relaxed. He was steadfast 
that he would undo all that was Catherine. For example, in 1797, he issued 48,000 orders, many of which were completely ignored. But people were nervous around Paul as he would put someone in jail for disobeying an order, even if they didn't know the order was issued. One story shows how erratic Paul's behavior was. Vegas, in his book, A History of Militarism, writes, quote, The Emperor Paul, leaving his palace one day, ordered a sergeant on guard to board his sled, saying, Climb in, Lieutenant. The man protested. Sire, I am but a sergeant. Paul replied, Climb in, Captain. Three days later, the newly commissioned officer, by now a lieutenant colonel, caused to the emperor some offense and found himself reduced to the ranks as suddenly as he had risen from them. Within a short time after taking the throne, Paul issued a series of laws regarding the inheritances of the Romanov family. It is this set of laws that I firmly believe was a major cause of the eventual fall of the Romanov dynasty under Nicholas II. One of the laws was that the Tsar could no longer choose who would inherit the throne. The firstborn male would be given precedence over any other claimant, effectively shutting out a woman unless extraordinary circumstances occurred. Interestingly, though, he also mandated that this law could not be reversed in the future. Yet another slap in Catherine's face. But the thing that I believe most hurt the family in the long run was the codification of the belief that the Romanov family did not owe service to Russia, as Peter the Great had said, but that Russia truly belonged to the Romanov family by divine right. While the laws did not say this specifically, the laws created the environment to allow it and have it penetrate the Romanov psyche. Lindsay Hughes, in her work entitled The Romanovs, explains the new rules as it applied to the growing extended Romanov family. Quote, Russia had already enjoyed the blessing of seeing the throne passed to Paul, but he deemed it vital to secure proper provisions of his large and growing family by setting up a department of appanages to provide independently of the state establishment with incomes set out according to the order of succession in blood relationships. There were also clauses on inherited and purchased estates, salaries and maintenance, administration, agricultural economy, and the monitoring of imperial states, titles, arms, and liveries. The heir to the throne, Nazlednik, bore the unique title Tsarevich, and was addressed as Imperial Highness, Imperatorskoy Vyoschestvo, and Grand Duke, Veleki Knyaz. The last two titles also applied to younger sons and daughters, Velekaya Knyazina, or Grand Duchess, also to grandsons, great-grandsons, granddaughters, and great-granddaughters of the Emperor, who also had the right to use the Imperial Coat of Arms. Thereafter, male descendants reverted to highness and prince of the imperial blood, while women went by their fathers or their husbands' titles. This was the proverbial nail in the coffin for Russia, 
as it makes Russia the Romanovs' personal playground. Now, some of the future Tsars were to take their role seriously, but others felt that since it was their divine right to rule over their property, that there was no logic to sharing or giving up their power. It was theirs, and theirs alone. As Hughes also writes, Russia was the hereditary property of the dynasty. Its pecking order, finances, and titles were all carefully defined in law to the extent that it was little more than another instance in the military government hierarchy. What also was created was a barrier to the rest of the Russian nobility to marry into the family as well. Basically, the spouse to a Romanov would be now a foreigner, likely a Protestant, and even more likely, a German. Paul continued his Prussian style of drilling of the troops, alienating more and more of his generals. Now, if anything is to be learned from the study of history, it is to not piss off your generals. Then, as if to try to anger all sides of society, as his father had done before him, Paul decided to sponsor the Catholic order of the Knights of Malta, which, you can imagine, did not settle well with the anti-papal views of the Russian Orthodox Church. By this time, the Napoleonic threat was beginning to rise in the West, and when he occupied Malta, Paul joined the Second Coalition against France, allying with Austria, Britain, Naples, and even Turkey. The year was 1798. Russia sent troops to both Italy and Greece to fend off Napoleon's advances. At times, the Russians performed admirably under one of the greatest generals in world history, Suvorov. And I will be doing a Slapshot episode on General Suvorov, thanks to a comment made by one of our listeners on their Facebook uh, fan page, uh, the Russian Rulers Podcast face, uh, Facebook page. Now, they were all able to evacuate their troops in advance of a crushing defeat, which they didn't suffer under Suvorov, who never lost a battle. Then, in 1800, Paul, in an absolute baffling move, broke off from the coalition and declared Russia a friend of Napoleon. Now, many in the government obviously now started doubting his sanity, as did a number of foreign diplomats. Then came Paul's harebrained plan to attack the British in India. More and more, his behavior convinced all that the time was right for a change. But they could not attempt it unless Grand Duke Alexander was on board. While some say that it is unlikely that Alexander knew of the plot, the Romanov family denied it. I find it more unlikely that he didn't. In early March of 1801, Alexander gave approval to remove, but not kill, his father. There were 68 conspirators from all aspects of Russian high society, led by one Count Peter Ludwig von Palin, a close confident, confidant of the Tsar. Supporters of the overthrow included the powerful Zubov brothers and General Leo Benigsen, both commanders of, of the Priobrazhenskoy and the Semenovskoy regiments were also in agreement. 
By March 10th, 1801, Paul knew there was a full-blown conspiracy in foot, and he was informed that Count Palin was the leader. At dinner with the Count, Paul confronted him of complicity. Palin calmly informed the Emperor that he had infiltrated the conspiracy and was about to have everybody arrested. Tsar Paul naively believed the story and further agreed to change out his personal guards with ones hand-picked by Count Palin. The next evening, after supper, a group of the plotters, many emboldened by drink, stormed the Emperor's room, where they found him cowering behind the curtains. They dragged him out screaming, What have I done to you? The response was emphatic. You have tortured us for years. In the struggle to subdue Paul, he was struck either with the backside of a sword or a heavy snuff box and killed. The official cause of death was a stroke, which seems kind of ridiculous given his age at the time of his death, 46. Even stranger was the fact that the Romanov family stuck by that story until their overthrow in 1917. The story also protected the conspirators as, since no murder was committed, no trial or punishment short of losing their jobs was meted out. Alexander was aroused from sleep and told of the death, which greatly disturbed the new Tsar. When he hesitated appearing before his troops to accept the accession, Count Palin, in a very famous quote, chided him, saying, Stop being a child. Go and reign. Father and son, Peter and Paul, both assassinated. They would not be the last. Next week, we begin the reign of Alexander I, who would have to deal with a new threat, the Grand Armée of Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, for this week in Russian history, for the week of June 5th through the 11th. In 1661, Tsar Fyodor III of Russia, and in 1672, Tsar Peter I of Russia were born. In 1686, Andrei Osterman, the Russian statesman under Peter the Great, was born. In 1752, a devastating fire destroys one-third of Moscow, which included 18,000 homes. In 1788, Russian explorer Garasim Ismailov reaches Alaska. In 1799, considered the greatest Russian poet, Alexander Pushkin was born. In 1897, Grand Duchess Tatiana of Russia, the second daughter of Tsar Nicholas II, was born. In 1937, during the Great Purge, the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin executed eight army leaders. And in 1942, in World War II, the United States agrees to send land-lease aid to the Soviet Union. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'd like to thank all of you who are posting some excellent suggestions on the Russian Rulers History Podcast Facebook, which I invite all of you to join. As of always, please don't forget to leave a comment, ask a question, make a suggestion there, or on our website at Russian Rulers. 
www.podhoster.com. And as always, das Vidanya is pasiba bolshoya.